as a teacher, one of the, the things that I really look forward to is getting feedback, of course, and hearing from people, uh, especially in a, in a venue like this, where it's all one way, it's all monologue. So to be able to get something back, to get some feedback... And hear what people are saying. It's just really gold to me because it allows me to be able to see what was really communicated and have an opportunity to, to fix things, change things, improve, and all of that. So there was a comment on, on YouTube where we archive uh, these, these videos. And uh, it was really interesting. It comes from a young man. And he wrote, My biggest enjoyment of Pastor Dave is that he doesn't tell you what to think. He just gets you to think. So far, so good, right? Then he writes, my biggest problem with Pastor Dave. <laughs> Here we go. He never tells you where Jesus stands when it comes to being a Republican or a Democrat. Oh, yeah. Now we're getting into it. It almost sounds like it's the uh, setup for a joke, right? Jesus, a Republican, and a Democrat walk into a bar. I'm not going to finish that. You can finish that. Or maybe just a really facetious comment. But then his next line that he wrote kind of points in a different direction. He wrote, does Jesus really have a problem with universal basic income? <laughs> now we're getting down into the weeds here, right? You know, it's, it's so interesting to me. You know, is Jesus a Republican and a Democrat, or a Democrat? If Jesus were here, would he be a Republican or a Democrat? Now, the obvious answer that we all want to jump to is, well, neither or both, right? But an answer like that would be too, way too facile, just way too superfluous, way too quick, and it wouldn't consider the complexities of a question like that, and it certainly wouldn't consider the subtext. Because we're at a time right now where people are really struggling with these types of issues. We're at a time right now where being a Republican or a Democrat or being left or being right goes way beyond just policy now in politics. It goes right to morality. It goes right to ethics. It goes to the heart of who we are. And when such questions are really being asked and in many cases answered sincerely, then we need to take a look at what's really going on here. Because if we don't, then that facile answer, that superficial answer, becomes an evasion. It's not really taking seriously what people are going through. If Jesus really is our North Star, if that's who we understand Jesus to be, the one who is pointing us in the direction of our Father, then are we still following Jesus with our own political choices, whatever they may be? with our own policy choices, whatever they may be. Now, anyone who reveres Jesus imagines that he's in their camp, right? Don't we? Anyone who revered Jesus wants Jesus in their camp. And some claim, of course, that he already is. And whatever side of an issue you may be on, it seems like Jesus is still being claimed as a standard bearer. President Lincoln pointed out in his second inaugural address that both North and South claim Jesus as their standard bearer in their causes, even though they are completely and diametrically opposed. Civil rights activists as well as white nationalists claim Jesus as their standard bearer. Social justice warriors, revolutionaries, and staunch conservatives claim Jesus as their standard bearer, whether it's left or whether it's right. 
You get to the point where you just want to say, well, the real Jesus, please stand up. I mean, who is he? Who are you, Lord? When everybody on all these different sites and all these different camps are claiming you as standard bearer in approval of the choices that they're making. And anyone who reveres Jesus imagines that he or she knows him, right? Understands him, is familiar and comfortable and feels safe with who they believe Jesus to be. In other words, they've co-opted Jesus into their camp. But the question remains, do we really know him? If we are going to be serious about answering this question, then I think we need to in, in, a, in a typical way that we do here. That question, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat if he showed up today? Now, if you know me, you know that you're not going to get an answer that you would expect, right? I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I'm hoping what we can do this morning is to get you to think to start thinking about these issues in a new way. With all that you know of Jesus, with all that you've either studied, all that you've imagined, everything that you know, I want you for just a moment, and we've done this before here, but let's do it again, to imagine meeting Jesus for the first time. Let's say you have a time machine and you can go all the way back to the first part of the first century in Judea, and you're meeting Jesus for the first time on a dusty street in Palestine. And not only that, you've got one of those Star Trek universal translators. Was that Star Trek? I think it's Star Trek universal translator. So everything he says, every word that he says, and everyone else says, you can understand. You can be a part of the mix. You can be a part of what's going on around you. How are your expectations holding up as you see him coming towards you? The first thing that you're going to have to deal with, of course, is the physical. And we've talked about this before, that archaeologists have shown that the average Palestinian man, Judean man, Galilean man uh, in the first, early first century was about five foot one inches tall. Five foot one, weighed about 130 pounds. So here comes Jesus, and you're looking down to him. I mean, it's just so strange to even think that, isn't it? He would be short he would be kind of thickly set. He was a carpenter. He was a workman. He would be thickly set. He would be well-muscled. His features would be round. He'd be dark-skinned. He would have short hair, not long hair. It was not the custom for Judean and Galilean men to have their hair long. He would have a short beard as well. Very different, very ethnic-looking than we usually imagine. And yes, such a thing as recessive genes take place, but we're talking about the average. But Jesus was average, must have been average, or the authorities wouldn't have had to have paid Judas to point him out so that they could arrest him. If he was six foot tall, blue eyed with long hair, I think he would have stood out, don't you? They would have known exactly who to go to. But they had to hire someone to point him out. So this is probably what Jesus looked like more. And that's going to be difficult for us to deal with. But beyond the physical shock, that's just the tip of the iceberg. When you start to consider how alien Jesus would appear to you, would be to you, when you start to consider his personality. Now, what do we know of his personality? The only thing we know are from clues right from the Gospels. But when we look at those clues, what would Jesus probably be like 
as he's walking up to you. The first thing is he would be so fully present, so completely there, that he would be probably unnervingly piercing to you. You would have the sense that he's actually seeing through you, seeing right into your soul when he looks in your eyes. That would be uncomfortable. He would be fiercely passionate about everything he does. He would be wicked sharp. His wit was just like a razor, the way he was able to articulate how quick his mind must have worked to be able to deal with what was thrown at him, what is recorded in the scriptures. And he was completely unafraid to express himself, absolutely direct. He was funny. We don't get his humor now because of the translation through 2,000 years of Aramaic idiom, but he was funny. He was irreverent. Oh my gosh, was he irreverent. And he was uncompromising in the way that he presented himself. He was seemingly unpredictable. He never really knew where he was coming from. He could be playing with children in the most appropriate way for an adult Jewish male, rolling around in the street, most likely, getting, giving horseback rides, playing with children, and then turn around and have knocked down, drag out fights with the Pharisees and other religious officials with equal abandon, with equal passion, with equal energy. He could be tender and he could be really fierce. He was an equal opportunity offender. I want you to think about that for a second. He was an equal opportunity offender of anyone who was feeling complacent, self-righteous, certain of themselves. He was someone who would come right up to them and challenge everything that they thought they knew. There's a great line about what a sermon should do, is that it should give comfort to the uncomfortable, but it should make the comfortable uncomfortable. That's Jesus. He was always pushing. He was always trying to direct. He was always trying to pull people to the next level that they could attain. He never presents what you would expect. There are no easy or facile answers with Jesus. He's always challenging. And here's it. Just when you think that you have Jesus figured out, just when you think you have Jesus domesticated, he shocks you and rocks you back on your heels. Think of his words. Think of what he did. For anyone with an agenda, he was frustrating. He was infuriating. He was unexpected, and he was absolutely outrageous. Jesus was always comforting to those who needed it. But think about this. He was never comfortable. He was always comforting, but he was never comfortable because he was always pointing and challenging and moving us, trying to get us to our own next level. And he was always occupying a space that was just beyond familiar, just beyond our familiarity, just beyond our expectation or even ability to understand. Now, this may not be the profile that you were expecting because we have so brought Jesus in as a cuddly teddy bear, but he was anything but. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Is there a possibility there? All right. We never answer the questions directly. With Jesus, when you look at his words, he was always pushing people. You ask him a question, you never get the question answered. And when I was even just reading that in the scriptures, especially early on, it made me crazy. 
Jesus, just give me the answer to the question. Could you imagine how his first followers felt? I mean, isn't it kind of infuriating to read the Gospels and you just want a straight answer from Jesus and you just can't get it? Imagine if you're actually following him around, if you have ordered your life around him, if you have given up your, your, your absolute lives and your income in order to follow him and you still can't get a straight answer. He made his own followers crazy over and over again. I guarantee that. Every time they became certain of their position, that's when the hammer would come out. I want to give you some, you know, some examples so you know that I'm not just pulling this out of the air. You know, poor Peter. you got to love Peter, the impetuous one, the one who was always kind of acting before he thought. But also, Peter, in his certainty that he was right, was the one who always jumped out ahead, right? Take a look at Matthew 16, starting at verse 21. The impetuous Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God, forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, you know this isn't going to end well, right, for Peter? Jesus turns and says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not settling your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Now, let's get behind me, Satan. There's a, another Aramaic idiom, get behind me. In our language, it would probably be, you know, all I want to see of you is in my rearview mirror. Get out of my face. Get away from me. Get out of my grill. He's telling them, just get gone. Satan. Now, he's not really calling him the devil, although it could be translated that way. But satana in Aramaic means the adversary. It means the accuser. It means the tempter. It means the one who is trying to divert you off purpose. He says, get away from me. You're diverting me. You're attempting to divert me. I don't need this right now. I, I need to keep my resolve here. You're a stumbling block. You're not setting your mind on God's interest. But man, Peter... Could you imagine Peter's reaction to this? He thinks that he's doing and protecting his Lord, doing what the Lord would want, trying to protect him, trying to get Jesus back on because this is important work. We've got to continue it. What do you mean you're going to be killed? And then to be set back on his heels like that? What do you think Peter may have thought? Well, apparently he doesn't learn real fast because in Matthew 26, starting in verse 51, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper and just before Jesus is going to be arrested. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus reached out and drew his sword. Now, John tells us that one in Matthew is Peter. Peter reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Thinks he's doing everything for Jesus that he can, protecting Jesus again. And Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And Luke tells us then he reaches down, picks up the ear, and heals the servant of the high priest to add insult to injury as far as Peter is concerned. What is he supposed to think again? He's trying to protect his Lord. He's doing everything that he knows how to do. And yet he keeps getting rocked back on his heels. At Mark 14, verse 29, Peter says to him, this is at the Last Supper, even though all may fall away, Yet I will not. Complete certainty from Peter. 
complete resolve from Peter. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept insistently saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all, all the disciples were saying the same thing also. also. Now Jesus, couldn't he have just let it go? Couldn't he have just given him one of those looks, you know? Did he have to really point it out? Did he have to humiliate Peter in front of the group? Jesus is making a point here. When we are placing ourselves in a place of certainty, that is a place where we have left the realm of faith. We have left the realm of the anavim. We have left the realm of those dependent grateful ones that are defined by kingdom or actually define kingdom itself. There's a reason Jesus does what he does. But how do you feel secure with that? You're following Jesus, and every time it's, you know what you're doing, it seems like you're doing something wrong. You're getting backed again. And getting off of Peter, how about Thomas and Philip at John 14, also at the Last Supper? Jesus is telling them that he's going away, telling them that he's going to be on a different path. And they're freaking out. They want certainty. They want to be brought back into that connection again. And Thomas says, Lord, just show us the way. Please, we don't know the way. You're talking about we know the way. We don't know the way. Show us the way. He says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Another one of those maddening replies, right? I just, just show me the way, Lord. You know, even when they asked him, where are you going? He said, come and see. (laughs) Always engaging us into action always inviting us into our own journey. Right after Thomas pops off Philip, you know, then show us the Father, Lord, and that will be enough for us. Philip, how long have you been with me? How long have we been doing this together? And you still don't know? You still don't see? I and the Father are one when you've seen me. You've seen the Father. What are you saying, show us the Father? Right here, right now. Jesus spins them around makes them confused, outraged, and challenged, but he's doing it for a reason. He's not letting them become complacent. He's not allowing them to stay within the camp that they're in, in the mindset that they're in. He realizes by the question itself that their mindset is the problem. The mode with which they are asking is the problem. Not any answer to a question. That's irrelevant. It's the way that they are moving forward that needs to be changed before anything else can happen. In Mark 9, he spins them around. He's confusing them. At Mark 9, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he began to question them. So they had been walking together this whole time. Jesus was at a different place, but he knew what they were talking about in a little huddle as they walked along. And so he questions them. What were you discussing along the way? Like a good lawyer, he already knows the answer before he asked the question. But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Okay, you know that this isn't going to go well with Jesus. Sitting down, he called the twelve to him and said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms... Imagine the scene here. He's taking this child in his arms, holding this child, and he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name 
receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Look what he's doing. Look what he's trying to teach them. He's challenging their views on everything that they think they know at every step. Just when they think that they got their foot on solid ground, he's pulling it back because he's trying in a very short amount of time to get them to see what is really going on. He's challenging their views on children. Whenever they became conventional, whenever they became hierarchical, whenever they became patriarchal, Jesus spins them around. Children were just chattel. Children were, were just possessions in first century Judea. But he holds them up in a different way. When they try to force them away from him, he says, no, no, never, never. Let them come, for such as these are the kingdom. Women were second-class citizens, if that, in the first, in the first century. And yet, when he goes in through Samaria and he stops at a well, he has a conversation with a woman who comes to draw. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. When his followers come back from getting supplies in town and they see him talking in public to a woman, they're outraged, they're angry, they're embarrassed. How could he break these taboos? Not only talking to a woman in public, but a Samaritan? What is going on? When a woman is thrown in front of him because she was caught in adultery, supposedly, he comes to her defense any of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Challenging their views culturally, challenging their views of a patriarchal system that they had grown up in. He challenges their views on wealth. When a rich young man comes to him and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And he says, eventually, sell everything, give it to the poor and come follow me. And then he turns to, when the man walks away because he's not ready to do that, he turns to his followers and he says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that to happen. And they are freaked out. Because to them, in their culture, the wealth was a sign of God's approval. So how was it that it kept them away from God's kingdom? Family and clan was everything. What does Jesus say to them? He says, unless you hate your father and your mother, your children, your own life, you're not worthy of following me. Family even? Really, Jesus? Religious authority, of course, was to be obeyed. Religious authority was, was the institution around which their society and their culture was built. And yet he says that unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The law was central to them. And he says, I didn't come here to abolish it, but I'm sure going to redefine it for you. And you're going to have to look at this in a completely different way if you really want to be in kingdom, if you really want to be part of my tribe. The purity codes... You know, he declares all foods clean. He says it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out. All foods are clean. It's hard for us to understand how much this is just slapping them in the face, spinning them around, challenging them with everything. Communion itself that we just participated in a few minutes ago. When he said, eat my body and drink my blood, people stopped following him. They got up and they left. 
because he was breaking everything about their culture and about their purity codes and about their dietary codes in saying what he said. They didn't understand where he was trying to go with this, but he lost so many of them. And whenever his followers became tribal, became nationalistic, became ethnocentric, he also spun them around. Take a look at Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. He sent them out to preach, right? He sent them out to heal. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he's not following us. He's not in our tribe. He's not in our group. And yet, he's using your name and doing this. We told him, cease and desist. But what does Jesus say? Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. He's redefining the very nature of the tribe as they understand it. Just as he was trying to redefine the nature of the family. Remember when his followers come and say, hey, your mother and your brother are outside and they want to see you. What does he say? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Look around you. You see these people? These people that connect and and follow me and are trying to learn and understand, this is my mother. This is my family. These are my brothers and my sisters. Redefining the nature of what it means to be in a tribe. The Jews hated the Romans, of course, because they were occupied. They had the boot on their neck. When a centurion comes to him, a Roman soldier, a leader, an official, and asks for his servant to be healed, Jesus says, I've never seen faith in all of Israel like this and heals his servant. The Jews hated the Samaritans as the half-breeds, as those who didn't follow and worship as they were supposed to. And yet Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman. And when he is asked, who is my neighbor? He tells the story of a good Samaritan who far outstrips anything that the priests and the leaders of Judaism could do for a person who was in need. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles because they did not follow the law. And yet when Jesus is in Phoenicia, a Gentile woman there who asked for her daughter to be healed, even after a little bit of sparring, he heals her daughter. Jesus is always trying to get them to understand. Whenever you think you've got it figured out, whenever you are becoming set in stone with your beliefs, is the time that you need to break free. And so we have to ask ourselves, what belief of ours, what beliefs do we have that we are so sure of, that we are so sure that Jesus would approve of, that he would spin us around on? You know, we probably don't even know because they're so deeply ingrained in us that we don't even realize that they could be off track, that there's something missing here. Jesus refuses to be co-opted into anyone's camp. He doesn't let it happen. He resists that. It's maddening how he always stays just out of our mental reach. Why? Just to be difficult? Just to be contrary? Just to keep us off balance? What is Jesus really trying to do here? You know, we forget. He said that his kingdom is not of this world. He told Pilate that at his trial. He's trying to 
come at this thing from a completely different angle, a completely different place. Jesus is operating, operating on a different plane. This is what I was trying to get across in my book, The Fifth Way, that our four ways are the ways of the earth. Jesus is coming at this whole thing from a fifth way that comes from an unearthly angle, comes into our space, but from the Father's space, this idea of a different plane completely. He said, I and the Father are one, trying to show us that he's seeing things from a completely different way through the Father's eyes. And until we can see it that way, he's going to remain out of reach. See, our difficulty is that it's nothing that he's trying to do that confounds us. It's who he is that confounds us. He's seeing the world from this completely different vantage with a completely clear eye. Remember that verse we've been talking about, the Peshitta eye, the eye that is clear, it is sincere, it is single, it is solitary, it sees things as they really are. It's sincere. And he's unafraid to tell us what he's seeing. He's unafraid to hurt our feelings as he's telling us what he's seeing because it's the only way that we're going to be able to see what he sees. I have some experience with this in my life, and I know you've heard me talk about Emery Tang, the Franciscan. He's the one that when I went into his office after one of his uh, lectures, one of his convocations, with my Bible, ready to debate him on the, on the point of Scripture that he just held up his hand in my face and said, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You be go, go come become convinced of what you're convinced of. You know? And at the time, I thought that was a cop-out. At the time, I thought that was an evasion. At the time, I thought that was kind of rude, that he didn't even listen to me and hear me out. And now I realize it's the only thing that one person can say to another person. And he had people like me in his office for 40 years, probably. What more is there to say? What more is there for him to hear? He already knows that it's the mode of operation. It was what I understood about the question that needed to be stopped and broken at the stem. Not any answer that he could possibly give. So he stopped me. He was unafraid to hurt feelings. I remember talking to him about this and about that, and he would just be really abrupt. He said, no, you got to be more incisive than that. Incisive. He said, I love that word. It means you're cutting all the way to the bone. Be incisive. I know I've told the story in here before when he was trying to get these old guys that showed up on the same weekend every year for 20 years and, and changing nothing about their thought processes, their attitudes. He told them finally, just stay home next year. Stay home. That didn't go over too well. You want to talk about being challenged? You want to talk about being outraged? You want to talk about being offended? Angry? Yeah, there were a lot of murmurings that weekend. But he was Christ-like in that way. He saw something that others didn't see, that I didn't see. And even though I was rocked and shocked and taken aback so often by him, I knew that there was something there that I needed. There was something there that I wanted so badly that I just kept coming back. And I so imagined that Jesus' followers were the same way. They saw something in Jesus that their hearts longed for. So even when he was doing what he did and spinning them around, that they still 
kept coming back because I knew that despite what Emery Tang ever said to me, he loved me and he wanted the best for me. And he wasn't going to give up on me if that still meant pounding me a bit. And I imagine that is exactly what Jesus' followers felt. They knew that he loved them even as he spun them around. Jesus is always giving the view from his Father's vantage, from what we have called liminal space, that doorway, that betweenness, not in anyone's camp, but it always kept him on the outside of the camp. I want to read you, and I've read this before, but this is a different context for it. And this is actually David Brooks. He calls it the edge of inside, and he's writing it from the perspective of a Richard Rohr article that he read on liminal space. And the interesting thing is he wrote this in June of 2016. So this is just before the storm that hit when Trump was elected. But listen to how prescient he was in this. But not only that, how it's only more applicable now. And think of it in terms of Jesus and what we're talking about and the way that he was presenting to his followers and to us by extension. He writes, in any organization, there are some people who serve at the core Okay? Those are the insiders. Those are the authorities. Those are the ones who have drunk the Kool-Aid, if you will. These insiders are in the rooms when decisions are made. And then there are outsiders. They throw missiles from beyond the walls. They are untouched by internal loyalties and try to take over from without. But there's also a third position in any organization. Those who are at the edge of inside. These people are within the organization, but they're not subsumed by the group think. They work at the boundaries, bridges, and entryways. I borrow this concept from Richard Rohr. His point is that people who live at the edge of the inside have crucial roles to play. As he writes, when you live on the edge of any group, you are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in a very new and creative way. A person at the edge of inside can see what's good about the group and what's good about rival groups. Rohr writes, a doorkeeper must love both the inside and the outside of his or her group and know how to move between those two loves. A person at the edge of inside can be the strongest reformer. This person has the loyalty of a faithful insider, but the judgment of the critical outsider. A person on the edge of inside knows how to take advantage of the standards and practices of any organization, but not be imprisoned by them. Rohr writes, you have learned the rules well enough to know how to break the rules properly, which is not really to break them at all, but to find their true purpose, not to abolish the law, but to complete it. The person on the edge of inside is involved in constant change. The true insiders are so deep inside, they often get confused by trivia and locked into the status quo. The outsider is throwing bombs and dreaming of far-off transformational revolution, but the person at the doorway is seeing constant comings and goings. As Rohr says, involved in a process of perpetual transformation, not a belonging system, more interested in being a searcher than a settler. Insiders and outsiders are threatened by those on the other side of the barrier. But a person on the edge of inside neither idolize the, idolizes the us 
nor demonizes the them. Such a person sees different groups as partners in a reality that is paradoxical, complementary, and unfolding. Now, there are downsides to being at the edge of inside. You never really lose yourself in a full commitment. You may be respected and befriended, but you're not loved as completely as the people at the core, the band of brothers. You enjoy neither the purity of the outsider nor that of the true believer. But the person on the edge of inside can see reality clearly. The insiders and the outsiders tend to think in dualistic ways, us versus them, this or that. But as Rohr would say, the beginning of wisdom is to fight the natural tendency to be dualistic. It is to fight the natural ego of the group. The person on the edge of inside is more likely to see wholeness of any situation, to see how us and them, which seem superficially opposed, are actually in complementary relationship with some larger process. When people are afraid or defensive, they have no tolerance for the person at the edge of inside. They want purity, rigid loyalty, and lockstep unity. But now more than ever, we need people who have the courage to live on the edge of inside, who love their parties and organizations so much. Did you hear that? Love their parties and organizations so much that they can critique them as a brother, operate on them from the inside as a friend, and dauntlessly insist that they live up to their truest selves. You got to see this. You got to see how this is who Jesus is. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have a tribe. It doesn't mean that he was tribeless. It doesn't mean that he was campless. It doesn't mean that he was sideless. And it doesn't mean that he was homeless either, by the way. Jesus had a home. It was in Capernaum. And he also had a tribe. He was a Jew. He was a fiercely loyal Jew. And he never stopped being a fiercely loyal Jew. He never broke the written law. But he sure went to war about the oral law that was so debilitating and oppressing the people. Jesus had a tribe. At Matthew 15, 24, he says, right out, straight out, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's his mission. That's his tribe. But his identity was with the Father first. I and the Father are one. And because of that, he saw all of Israel, all of his tribe, his camp, from that vantage, from the Father's vantage, through the Father's eyes, on the edge of inside, which made him the first to criticize his own tribe and the first to praise another, and vice versa, when that was appropriate, of course. See, for us, as long as we identify with our tribe and with our party, First, we will never understand Jesus. We'll never find comfort in his teachings and his person because we will be political animals. We will be politically based. We will be looking there first for really our salvation, at least in the short term. And that's not who Jesus is. And we have to understand something about, a pol about politics quickly. Politics is unapologetically 
and necessarily dualistic. It has to be. Really what politics is doing is managing the diversity within a group. It's not seeking unity because unity in the macro is impossible unless you have an authority that's going to pound people into submission. But politics, at the very best, is not trying to seek uniformity of thought, uniformity of concept, but it's trying to find a way to manage and balance the agendas and the actions of the power groups in that community, within that nation. Politics works to manage tensions in a world of diversity, maintain that diversity necessarily, and then create a symbiosis. Those are groups that are working to mutual beneficial actions. That manages the relationships within the group, even as it keeps them distinct, which is not the same as unity. It's the best that we can do in a political arena. But Jesus is not working in the macro. And that's something we have to understand. If we're going to paint Jesus as a revolutionary, if we're going to paint him as a political person, if we're going to put him in a political party, then automatically we have put him into the macro. Jesus doesn't belong there. Jesus works in the micro. Jesus is working on individual relationships. Jesus is trying to hurt, hot, turn heart lights on. I'll get that right at some point. Turn those heart lights on for the individual so that they can go out into the macro as their best selves, as someone who is seeing from the edge of inside through the Father's eyes what needs to happen in order for that community to be as healthy as it can, even as it maintains its diversity. It's never going to be unity of thought that binds us, but it can be unity of action, even as we come from different camps. If Jesus had any political beliefs, they're not recorded in the Gospels. Everywhere someone tries to put a political mantle on him, he throws it back off again. He won't go there, which means that politics to Jesus and Jesus' message are not only unimportant, but they're also non-essential to understanding what Jesus was about. And even saying this, it doesn't mean that he had no political ideas or no political concepts, but it means that from whatever platform he chose to work, whether it was Jewish versus Samaritan, whether it was Republican versus Democrat, he would equally bring comfort and frustration to both camps. That's who he was. That was his focus. That was his agenda. We talked about a few weeks ago that Moses, when he set up the tent of meeting, sent it up outside the camp of the Israelites. Whenever they camped in the wilderness, he would go out, and if you translate the cubits, it was a half to three-quarters of a mile outside the camp and set up the tent of meeting, which means if you wanted to go meet God, you had to go outside the camp. God did not exist. Bad way to put it. God's presence could not be apprehended. God's presence could not be felt inside the camp. You needed to go outside the camp, outside of everything that you think you know, outside of all of your certainties, outside of your blinders, if you wanted to meet God. 
And if you wanted to meet Jesus, you must go outside the camp as well, outside your camp, outside your tribe, and outside your party. Jesus is all about selling everything that you have, about letting go all those limitations that you cling to that keep you from full connection to everyone and everything around you at the micro level. And even as you interact with the macro, the things that you cling to are blocking you from being able to see that connection. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to let go. If you can only find security, if you can only find purpose within your own party, within your own camp, then you're missing Jesus entirely and everything that he has to say and everything that he is trying to teach us and show us. If you're asking if Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat in order to justify your own position, then be prepared to be very frustrated. (laughs) He will not give you a straight answer. And if you are looking to Jesus as your North Star to point the way that you really want to go, then be prepared to be led well outside your camp well outside your tribe, at least a half a mile outside, because that's where he's going to take you. Either way, Jesus is always going to surprise you, and he's always going to shock you until you're finally looking at him with the same eyes that he's looking at you. Let's pray. Father, we are necessarily a tribal people. We have our tribes. We have our families. We have our familiarities, the things that bring us comfort, the things that we've learned to rely on as secure. And those things are necessary in our lives. They need to continue in order for life to continue. What we're asking, Lord, is that you help us to see that we can hold lightly enough to those security blankets to be able to move forward and see with your eyes as well. To stay with one foot outside the camp enough to be able to see the truth that you are presenting every moment of our lives. Help us to resist the temptation to flop down into one camp or another and throw stones at the camp on the other side of the fence and help us to see with Jesus' eyes that we can be passionate about our politics, about the policies that we think are going to bring the greatest good and yet still be completely loving to whoever may disagree and see them as fellow human beings trying to do the same thing from a different point of view. If we can do that, Lord, we are truly following you. And that's what we say we want. Help us to live in concert with what we say we want so we can actually get there. Thank you for everything that you've given us, Lord. All the tools that are already here that we can use to fulfill everything that you've placed us here for. And thank you for your constancy and your love. And never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.